I believe this with every fiber of my physical, spiritual, mental being, that nutrition is the first and guiding principle of health, that all roads eventually lead back to food and nutrition in one way or another, in some form or fashion. That's not a cliche. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Today, we're going to dive deep into the world of nutrition as we connect with a veteran from the world of health, wellness, and media, as we get to know a longtime industry friend of mine, Dr. Michael Garko. As a credentialed nutritionist, he is empathetic, creative, open-minded, and optimistic. Dr. Garko hosted and produced a nationally syndicated, globally streamed health talk show for over 15 years. He has a science-based functional medicine nutrition practice called Neutrologic Health and Wellness and is a trusted advisor to several supplement companies. Dr. Garko lives his life mindfully, one day at a time, with purpose, passion, and gratitude. He does this in service to others. So it's the perfect time for us to have this conversation as Thanksgiving is upon us and the holidays are here. Dr. Michael Garko, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Karina. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your wonderful podcast, Nutrition Without Compromise. Many of my friends and colleagues have been on your podcast and have sung your praises. So I feel privileged to be here today. And again, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, well, it's a pure joy to host. I really love digging into the information and being able to reconnect with thought leaders like you and really help share our knowledge with the broader marketplace. I mean, people in general, that's what we're here to do. So thank you. I do have to start with a disclaimer today because I imagine we will be diving deep into some conversations around health conditions as well. So before we start this topic, I need to preface one thing. This episode is only for informational purposes. It's educational. So the information that we share, both Dr. Garko and myself, is not intended to treat, diagnose, or otherwise augment your personal situation. If you have a health condition that you need to seek service around, you should meet with a trusted health professional who can help you with your specific journey. I know we had to get that out of the way. <laughs> Call it the legal mumbo jumbo. I did that every day too before my show. Yeah, well, it's important, right? You just have to get through the disclaimer because the reality is too, your health story wasn't always sugar plums and peaches, was it? No, it wasn't. It's interesting how we live our life on a day-to-day basis. And we get up each day with the presumption, many of us do anyway, get up with the presumption that today's pretty much going to be like yesterday, assuming that it was relatively good. And you don't expect any dramatic bends and turns or twists and turns within the bends and turns. But such is not the case. And we all know, probably everyone watching your podcast has had some moment in life when all of a sudden, out of the blue, seemingly, something dramatic happened to them, both good and bad, relative to their health, wellness, and well-being, or their life generally. This often happens 
And it happened to me. And on October the 5th at five o'clock, 2016, is when my life changed in a way that I never anticipated. Well, and to that point, you have always been what I would call a picture of health. And in fact, the envy of many people near your age. I mean, you've been in this industry a long time. I Just by saying, you've, you had a radio show for over 15 years that was really focused on health and nutrition. So it's obvious you've been in this space a long time, but you're also on the older age perspective. Yeah, well, I lean into my age. I'm 78 now. And what you said about how I live my life, and I get up every day and I say, I live your life mindfully in the moment with purpose, passion, and gratitude, all in the better service of others. And that's why I wanted to come onto your podcast. This is in the better service of others, not for me, but for anybody watching and to share with them my experience in hopes that somehow it may illuminate, inform, or otherwise make some sort of difference. And I've led a good life. I mean, by that, I mean, I've done most in terms of my health, I've taken care of myself. You don't get to 78 where I'm at now, go through what I've been through and be able to be on here with you. And I oftentimes too in life, you may do the right things. Oftentimes we do the right things with good intention, but bad things happen. And on October the 5th at five o'clock, 2016, I found myself sitting in front of an oncologist and how I got there was one day I was doing my show and on my show, my own personal physician was on Dr. Harris McElwain, who has since passed away. He was a dear friend and colleague. And when we got off air, I said to him, I asked him, I said, Harris, I have a lymph node in the right side of my neck that's waxing and waning. I don't like it. It's been going on for several months. And he palpated it. And he said, we'll do a CAT scan. And we did a CAT scan with the study came back. We looked at it. And I saw that in the right side of my neck, the lymph nodes were very enlarged. They looked like golf balls. I mean, I was startled. And he said to me, would you be willing to see a a hematologist oncologist? And I said, of course. And then he said to me, I'm going to send you to see Matthew. And that sounded rather biblical. And I said, Matthew, who? And he said, Matthew Fink, Dr. Matthew Fink. And he said, Michael, He's young. He's only 42, but he got out of med school at 25. He's been doing this a long time. I think you'll find him to be at the top of his game and you'll like him. So my appointment was for four o'clock, Karina. I got there and it was late in the afternoon and there were hardly any cars in the parking lot. And I got there and I got out of my vehicle and I was walking across this barren parking lot and I happened to look up and there was this giant sign that said Florida Cancer Cancer Institute and Research Center. And I'm walking into these doors and I'm thinking, what am I walking into? So I got in there and I went upstairs and waited for him. And he walked in and I was struck by, he sort of commands the room when he walks in. And he talked to me for a long time, asking me all kinds of questions about my life and this and that. And then at one point he said, Dr. Garko, I, I need to examine you. Would you mind taking off your shirt? And of course, I took off my shirt and I'm standing there and he's looking at me and he had this smile on his face. And I said, what's the matter? He said, oh, there's nothing wrong. He said, listen, he said, I'm 42. At the time I was 72. He said, you're 72. He said, I wouldn't take my damn shirt off. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? And I made a joke and I, I'm just a mere PhD trying to get along. And here I am telling the oncologist, I said, well, you need to listen to my show. <laughs> 
Well, and for those listening or watching, Dr. Garko has what I would call an impressive physique. He always had biceps that I would say are the admiration of many and takes pride in his physical fitness. I mean, it's something that you spend time and effort on. So I've been that way since I was a boy out of instinct. I never knew I was going to end up where I did in my life. I always took care of myself and had an interest in food and nutrition instinctively. I don't know where that came from. Probably my mom. So he examined me and then we sat down and we were just a couple of feet apart. And I looked at him and I have a almost a photographic memory and I can remember details. And I said to him, I asked him, I said, what's your hypothesis? He said, I think you have lymphoma. The minute he said that, I turned ice cold and my hands began to tremble. My next comment or question to him was, is that a death sentence? And he said, no, it's not. But he said, I'm not sure what it is. He said, well, tonight we'll draw some blood. On Friday, we'll do PET scan. On Tuesday, I'll put you in surgery and we'll remove one of the lymph nodes for biopsy. I recall driving home. How I got home, I don't know. But I was in shock. And that same evening, he already knew what he wanted to do. And he said to me, what I'm reporting to you is word for word. He said, listen, what we're going to do is at the time, he said, 32 hours of chemo and 28 hours of radiation. And he just told me he wasn't sure, but he was just being cautious, but he knew I had cancer. And then he looked at me and I'll never forget it with a look in his eye. And he said, we have not a moment to waste. And I said, why is that? He said, because the distance from your neck to your brain is very short. I knew I was in trouble. And so I got home somehow. And then for the next several weeks, I was either in a doctor's office, a clinic or surgery. We ended up having to do three biopsies prior to my treatment with chemo and radiation. One day I found myself, the team at the time was Dr. Fink, the oncologist, and I had a radiation oncologist and I had two surgeons, a general surgeon and an ENT surgeon. We added another surgeon later. And I was with the ENT surgeon and I was in there and he wanted to find the primary site in my throat. So I didn't know you could stick a human hand down somebody's throat. And he's trying to find this primary and he's scoping me. And he said, Dr. Garko, I can't find it. He said, we're going to have to put you back in surgery. He said, I will do the surgery this time. I will collect the biopsy. I went back in. The results came back negative. It said I didn't have cancer because there was no primary. It had disintegrated. Long story short, I was ultimately diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma of the cervical lymph nodes caused by HPV-16, stage four. I asked three of my doctors, independent of one another, I said, when do you think I got infected with that virus? And they said, probably decades ago, maybe even as a boy, you may have, or in high school, you could have kissed a girl or whatever, who knows, but that site has disintegrated. And that virus lives in the orthopharyngeal area of your throat back on the tonsil area, but it, was, it had disintegrated. But we knew I had cancer because it had metastasized to my neck. That virus, hypothetically, lived in my body for decades and then one day decided to express. At the time, in reflection now, I was under tremendous stress for about a year. And my belief is that stress triggered the expression of that virus. That's my belief. Well, as many women listening to this show are likely aware HPV is a precursor to many types of 
hormonal cancers that women experience and is one of the reasons that we now have a vaccine for HPV available to young girls. And boys. Yeah, that's true. And the problem with boys is that you often don't actually have a physical representation of the genital warts or the HPV. You don't actually know that you have it because you don't have any warts. They're flat. They don't express. And so they ultimately don't know unless they get tested. And how many boys do you know that get tested for that? I mean, it's not even talked about among them. And so this could just sit there latent for all those decades, right? Your point's so well taken, not only for young boys, but right now there's an epidemic of middle-aged men who are dying left and right from HPV-16, neck cancer. And nobody's talking about it. That's one of the reasons why I'm on your show, to make that, to make your audience aware. So here I sit, and remember I said we did a PET scan. In the world of cancer, and I didn't know this, I learned it because in process, there are bends and turns all the time. And then there are twists and turns within the bends and turns. Listen, cancer is an unforgiving, unrelenting, undiscriminating, pernicious disease that prowls and preys on the young and the old and everybody in between. It is something. It has been on this planet a long time and it's figured out how to portray itself in many ways. So as fate would have it, the bends and turns, twists and turns, the day of chemo and radiation to begin, we did a biopsy of my neck. I told you that. I also went to see Dr. Fink for the PET scan results. I was sitting there with him and he said, look, now on a PET scan, if you have a lesion anywhere in your body, it lights up, literally. And I was looking at it and I saw in my neck, it was lit up like Christmas tree. Then he said to me, look over here. And I looked and I said, that's my lung. He said, yes. And I saw a lesion. He said, I don't know what that is. It's small. He said, it's a wild card. We'll deal with it later. We got to treat your neck. And when he said that, I didn't appreciate the implications and of that comment. It's a wild card. He said, we're going to have to biopsy that. So now I'm back in surgery again, the third time to biopsy that lesion on my lung. As fate would have it, on the day I started chemo and radiation, I walk into the, and you're so nervous. I don't care who you are. I've been asked this many times in interviews. Were you afraid? I said, well, hell yes, I was afraid. I said, but I was not a coward. I did everything they asked me to do. Being afraid is not shameful, but I I know I wasn't a coward. So I walk in and nurse says, Dr. Fink wants to see you. And I went upstairs and he said, I got some good news today and I have some bad news. Twists and turns, bends and turns. I said, okay, what's the good news? He said, that lesion on your lung is not a metastasis. It's lung cancer, stage 1A. I was crestfallen and I looked at him and I said, what do you think about that? He said, I'm happy for you. And he pulled out his phone and on it was a text message and it was to the radiation oncologist and it said, quote, I think we saved Dr. Garko's life, close quote. I said, why did you say that to him? He said, listen, if you, but for you being infected with that virus, God knows when you brought you here, nobody would have ever looked for that little lesion on your lung. It would have advanced and you would have been dead in three years. I looked at him and I said, are you telling me I had to get cancer not to die from it? And he said, well, that's an interesting way of putting it, but yes. 
So I wrote an essay entitled How Cancer Saved My Life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think to your point, that year of stress, that year of incredible stress that you were under, ultimately changed your health. That's your belief. And I think that many people, they can relate to that because when do health challenges start to erupt? For me, it came when I was working 70 plus hour weeks and doing so, burning the candle at both ends for a long time. I went on a juice fast because I just wanted to reset everything. It was a multi-day juice fast, right? Using simple things like lemon juice, a little bit of syrup from maple, so maple syrup, but with no additional ingredients and some peppers to help like cleanse that cayenne pepper. And by the end of the third day, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to start reintroducing foods. I was just feeling a little gunked up. I I felt a little disconnected from my stomach. And that was the simplest way I could really explain it. And so I started to reintroduce foods. And the first thing that I noticed was that I had a challenge swallowing. And so I was like, well, I know what this is. I had a session with a Reiki professional friend of mine about six months before where she had just gone over my body and had stopped at the throat and said, there's something going on here. I'm not sure what that is, right? So I remembered back to that moment and that I was having, it wasn't that I couldn't swallow. It was that it took a lot of effort. Felt almost like things were getting stuck. And so I went ahead and I had my thyroid checked and it was at such a low performance level that I was diagnosed with a hypothyroid condition for which I needed to start taking this medication. And as somebody in the supplement field, I'm like, well, what can I do to fix this without, I don't want to take a drug for the rest of my life. Why would I want to do that? And my doctor at the time looked at me kindly, but also this is something that is a little serious where your levels are right now. You're feeling cold. You're having difficulty swallowing. This isn't something to ignore. And if you were to ignore it, you'd end up back here or worst case scenario, you end up in a coma. I'm just like, okay, she's just trying to scare me into just taking the drug every day because she's looking at someone who's going to be non-compliant, right? I'm going to probably not take it. (laughs) Now, granted, it took me a while to get everything right. They prescribed Synthroid for me and I really didn't react well to that. It made me feel like my heart was racing and I'd wake up in the middle of the night. So I had to go to more of a bioidentical setup. They give you NP thyroid? Yeah. So I'm on NP thyroid. It's a mix of T3 and T4. And I've been on that for about more than a decade now. Tried to go off it, tried addressing other things with my adrenals, but my thyroid just ultimately got burned out. And it could be because I was maybe experimenting with too much iodine for a while. <laughs> It'd be a variety of things. You're saying things that I could comment on this whole business about self, maybe sometime if I can come back and we can talk about that, the notion of self-treating and whatnot. If I said it one time, I said it a million times in 15 years on my show. I did more shows on stress than I have since. And I would say, and I say today, stress is a killer. I came to understand what that really meant. And you're right. Stress is a killer. And in your instance, it most likely was the stress that provoked your thyroid. How that happens, who knows how. Doctors can't explain that. It's very difficult. I mean, they think it's one part this, one part lifestyle, one part exposure to toxins, one part perhaps I was experimenting with too much iodine and supplementation. Which are all stressors, right? So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that narrative. And you've led a good life. You didn't abuse yourself. You've done things properly and nutrition. And how many times people said to me, well, how could you get sick? How could you get sick? Well, and there's almost shame around it. 
It's like people are like, oh, well, you must have done something wrong to deserve cancer. This is one of the challenges that I have seen friends who were diagnosed with cancer confront because it's almost as if people believe you did something to deserve it somehow, like as if there's an element of karma to getting cancer. I mean, I was a few steps away from a monastic life, man. I didn't do drugs. I didn't go party. I'm an ex-musician too. I did that my whole life. I've led a good life. I'm telling you, go to the gym five days a week, train, supplements. My diet is a good diet, Mediterranean diet. I've been eating that since I was a boy and I got sick. And let me tell you, I had chemotherapy and radiation. These are toxic therapies. How many times have I been asked, well, did you, what did you do during therapy? This is an important theme. Maybe I can come back and talk about this sometime. What supplements did you take? What did you do? This and that. I said something. That night I sat with my oncologist for the first time. I was all in with him. And I said, I will do. My instinct said, believe him. I don't know what it was. And I did the researcher. I'm a medical researcher by trade and practice too. And I went into the literature and I made the conscious decision to stop all supplementation, no augmentation at whatsoever. And I, why? Because I finally concluded that I wanted these toxic therapies to do their job, which was to kill the cancer cells and that virus. And that's hard. I mean, you might have thought, okay, well, what about vitamin C or some of the basics? And it's like, well. Yeah, it all seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it's not. And again, if you invite me back, I can share with you my take on all of that and anti-cancer diet and what to do during, before, and after. So I stopped everything. I was encouraged to go get a second opinion. And my friends pulled some strings and I ended up at Florida at Moffitt Cancer Center, which is a big deal here in the Tampa Bay area. And I walk in the room and I have all the heads of the department, nurses, doctors, a bunch of run. And I said, Chitch, I'm not that important. So I sat down and they examined me and this and that. And they all they said, we concur with Dr. Fink. We agree with his diagnosis. We agree with his treatment plan. There was an oncologist sitting right across from me. And I looked at him and I said, listen, this therapy is aggressive. I'm on radio and TV every day, live two hours a day. Am I going to be able to work? That was what was on my mind. I wanted to work. And he said, well, I had a practice in Manhattan and I had actors and actresses, movie stars, radio and TV personalities such as you come to see me, go through treatment and none, none was able to work. I said, not a one. He said, not a one. I went to work every day. Don't know how. I'm asked that all the time. And I was at iHeartMedia and was filled with people. And I would come in every day and they said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm going to work. And the company for whom I worked that owned the show, who were just were my former students, he said, you don't have to go to work, doc, stay home. I said, are you paying me? They said, yes. I said, well, hell, then I'm going to work. And I went in every day and I did the show and I made the conscious decision, Karina, to share everything with the audience. They could see me because we were streaming that show across the planet. We were in 500 cities nationwide, coast to coast, and we were around the world. I was, there were people in Russia, South America, Europe, everywhere watching the show every day. And I shared everything with them and they could see what I looked like. About halfway through, I got really sick. And I often wondered, why do cancer patients get so thin and frail? Well, I found out why they can't eat. I developed what's called mucositis. Radiation and the chemo destroyed the mucosal lining of my mouth and the chemo destroyed the mucosal lining of my stomach. 
I can tell you without being hyperbolic, the pain and suffering was cosmically humbling. I've never known anything like it ever before or since. It was incredible. The only thing I could consume were ice chips. To drink water was painful. And here I had to go on air and talk and I did it. I don't know how I did it. I've been asked that a million times. How did you go to work? And I did. The last week of therapy, I was really sick and I promised I wouldn't drive because they had me on these pain medications. And my former students who owned the show and the company provided drivers for me. One of the owners would drive me here and there. I was treated like a prince. And I often joke about that. I said, that was a good thing because I didn't want to be treated like a king because they behead the king. (laughs) I said, I just wanted to be the favorite prince in the palace. And I was treated so well. But the last day of radiation, I heard the radiation oncologist tell the driver, he's pretty sick. I don't think he's going to make it to work next week. Well, he was right. I couldn't do it. That was the only week of work I missed. It was on a Wednesday evening. They took me in three times to be hydrated. And this was a momentous moment in my life. I live alone. I wasn't married at the time, nor am I now. But my daughter was away working. And I was home alone. And I was so hungry. And I was lying on the sofa. And I wanted to get up. I said, if I can get up and maybe make some broth. I tried to get up. I couldn't do it, man. And so I rolled off the sofa onto the floor on my knees. And I looked up and I said, either take me or heal me. I was ready to go. And as I often said to people, you get to a place where you accept your fate. I wasn't giving up, but I wondered how much more I could endure. And I said, if you want to take me, I'm okay with that. But if you want to heal me, let's get on with this so I can go about helping others. I stayed home that week. I went back to work the following Monday. And then we were done. And Dr. Fink said, you need to rest. We have to decide what to do about that lung. Remember, I had lung cancer. And that was in the back of my mind. The whole time they're treating me for my neck, I'm thinking about what's going on with my lung. And I didn't smoke, by the way. So I went home and I did my research. What is the therapy for the lung? There were three options. Do nothing, CyberKnife, which is a form of targeted radiation, or a lobectomy where they remove the upper lobe of that left lung. Your left lung has three lobes, upper, middle, and lower. The, left, the upper lobe accounts for about 15 to 17% of respiration. And we, I go in that day to see Dr. Fink. He said, we're going to make a decision today. And I, I said, let me see what he's going to say to this. In a sort of ironic way, I said, well, what do you think about CyberKnife? And he was looking down at his computer. He looked up at me and he said, I'm trying to save your life. We're not doing any blank, I won't say it, cyber knife. That's the first time I heard him use a profanity. I laughed. I said, I know. It's the lobectomy in the long run. So we did it. And he had a very capable, wonderful surgeon here in Tampa, Dr. Summer, went to see him. And he did the surgery on a Thursday. Friday morning, he walks in, bends and turns, twists and turns. He said, you did great. I did it in an hour and a half, takes three hours. You did great. But I said, what? He said, that lesion did shrink from the chemo, but it penetrated your visceral pleura. So we don't know if any cells escaped. You're going to have to see Dr. Fink. Thank God he did it robotically because they didn't have to cut me open. I would have been in the hospital for two weeks. I was in there three or four days and I walked out, went to see Dr. Fink the following week. He said, we're going to do some 
adjuvant chemotherapy. We're going to do another eight hours of chemo. We're going to change the chemo drug from cisplatin to carboplatin. I'm worried about you losing your hearing and your kidneys failing. He said, I dosed you very heavily. And he said, you'll have less side effects. And he said, I'm also going to put a limpta in the bag. I did it intravenously. You sit for four hours and it drips in. And he said, Olympta is a lung cancer drug. And I talked to one of the nurses about Olympta. And she said, Dr. Garko, Olympta will kick your ass by itself. <laughs> and so he said, you'll have less side effects. And I made a joke. I have a dark sense of humor, I guess. And I said, oh, chemo light. He said, there's no such thing, Dr. Garko, is chemo light. Well, he was right. I got sick about halfway through. It took three months. I got sick again. I finished it. And now I sit before you and your audience. That was back in 2016. And I sit here today in the most humblest way I can and just so grateful. I am so grateful to be able to continue to work and to help people and to do what I think I was put here to do. And if you think for a second, and I want to make this point, some may disagree. My description of what cancer is, I gave that to you a moment ago. I was asked in an interview or I was commented on, I said, well, you beat cancer. And I stopped. And I said, stop. I said, no, I didn't. They said, well, you've been diagnosed as radiologically free of cancer. I said, makes no difference. Fighting cancer is like a world title fight. You know the opponent's a killer. You've looked at all the videotape on the opponent, and there's just no way you're going to be able to defeat this opponent, but you've got to get in the ring and fight for 15 rounds. What are you going to do? You're going to fight. And what are you hoping for at the end? To get to round 15 and Michael Buffer says, it's a draw. And then what you hope for is the opponent doesn't ask for a rematch. Once you're a cancer patient, you're always a cancer patient. That's what I believe. I am a bit super superstitious as well. And listen, I have a great deal of respect for that disease. And I know what it can do. I don't think I beat cancer. I just, for whatever reason, been able to find a way to get to where I am with you today at this moment with you and your audience. And again, I'm so grateful that you asked me to come on to share this with people watching this podcast. Well, I have to jump in here and give a moment's apology. I do have construction happening next door. And I do think from time to time that you may hear some of that. There's literally a backhoe trying to eradicate the cancer from my neighbor's front yard. I can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, every once in a while I hit a beep, so hear a beep. So I'm like trying to mute that button and see if I can at least keep that to a minimum. But I wanted to dive in a bit into what your post-cancer kind of nutrition focus is now. Like what have you learned through the process? What have you changed? What have you adapted perhaps from what you did before? And do you feel like that is helping to protect you from that potential for a future resurgence of cancers? Again, maybe I can come back onto your show. I have more articles on nutrition and cancer, again, than I have since. And I'm pretty familiar with the literature. And my diet prior to cancer was a Mediterranean diet in a classic sense. My mother was an Italian immigrant. My, both my parents were immigrants. And it was a multilingual home five, six languages were spoken in the house. I grew up in America, but I'm first generation in this country, but it was like living in Europe. <laughs> and it was a Mediterranean diet. And I ate that my whole life. I didn't use drugs. I didn't smoke. I didn't use alcohol. I led a clean, good life. So you say, my God, and I still got sick. 
That is what's perplexing. And I was taking supplements and you say, you did the right things. How come you were not able? That's what's humbling. But to your question, I've continued on with my diet. There is so much misinformation, so much wrong, wrong headed thinking about nutrition and cancer and what you do prior to, during and after treatment. It's just a mess. People going on these crazy diets, doing bizarre things, self-treating. Well, I wanted to mention for a moment that I did have Dr. William Lee on this podcast who wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease. And one of the things that he focuses on is a very wide, varied diet, mostly plants, similar to what Michael Pollan would say, and just ensuring that you are covering your bases, that you're eating a wide variety of foods and not just the same thing every day. The Mediterranean diet is already naturally higher in omega-3s and lower in omega-6s than the standard American diet. So you're already checking that box. It does also tend to be healthier carbohydrates than those of the general American public, but you are eating pastas and things along these lines as well. Yeah, but I eat, I haven't eliminated grains, but anytime I eat a grain, it's a whole grains, whether it's pasta or whatever. I eat meat, I eat mostly fish, not but the small fish, sardines and anchovies. So we can call those the vegetarian fish, right? Like they're not eating. I guess. <laughs> I don't eat a lot of red meat. Do I like a steak from time? Oh, absolutely. But my diet is primarily plant-based. It's, again, Mediterranean in nature. I do drink wine with my dinner. I have a glass of wine. I don't abuse drugs. I, I don't smoke. I go to the gym five days a week, work out an hour and a half, two hours a day. I've done that a long time. and. What I can share with your audience is this. Prevention is one thing. Preparation is a different matter. And they're different. We can practice prevention. But are you prepared for the moment when you'll get sick? If you don't die of an accident, you are going to die of some disease process to some organ system or systems in your body. That's a fact. Well, and we've seen that over the course of the last couple of years on overdrive with COVID, right? So people who's immune systems weren't prepared for the ravages of something that could be a somewhat simple cold, so to speak. I'll give you a simple analogy. You can prevent forest fires. You remember Smokey the Bear, but are you prepared for that forest fire? Are you prepared to fight it? You can prevent it. So it's prevent. So post-treatment, I've been trying to do prevention and more preparation. My doctors said to me that I was physically fit and I expended an inventory, almost my entire inventory of health to fight that disease. I was somewhat prepared, thank goodness. I could have been better prepared, but you have to be prepared so you can practice prevention. I'm saying you shouldn't do that, but it's preparation as well. What do I mean by that? Preparation means that you're looking not just for the moment, but down the road and assume that you're going to get sick. Do you have the stamina, the physical stamina? You have to prepare mentally as well. Do you have the mental, psychic, and spiritual stamina? Do you have the wherewithal, so to speak, to deal with it? Have you prepared everything? The last thing you want to do when you're sick is make sure you're taking care of wills and doc. I know that sounds kind of trivial, but you want that all taken care of, man. 
That can be part of your self-care. I mean, I know it may sound a little crazy, but you can take that moment and say, well, I got this reminder in the mail about my 401k and making sure my beneficiaries on that document are right. I mean, that can be one of your mindful moments. I'm taking care of my future and then take a little meditative moment after you've done it. Bring in some of these elements of calming, relaxing, I don't know if you want to call it meditation. It doesn't have to feel like you're sitting there with a singing bowl. You can implement strategies to do some deep breathing, to do some centering exercises, step outside with bare feet and get your feet on the soil and just appreciate nature for a moment, stand in the sun. I mean, these are all things that each of us can do to get back to balance because I think too often we get tied to our desk. I'm guilty of this too. We get tied to the tasks. I'm guilty of this too. And we don't listen to that inner voice that's saying, I need a minute and I'm overstressed. And suddenly I'm snapping at my kids because they were nipping at my heels when I should have been better prepared for that moment because of course they're nipping at my heels. They're my children. They want my attention all the time. There's another dimension to preparation. I was being interviewed and in fact, was one of my producers. I was doing my own show. One of my producers who I used to bring on air with me, he was very good. He was so talented. And he was interviewing me. Now it was spontaneous. It was right, right after I had finished treatment. He asked me, he said, what was the most difficult thing that you experienced in the two years that you went through this? I thought for a split second and I said, being alone. I said, my mother raised me to be very gregarious and connected to the world. But she also raised me and taught me and gave me the skills to be alone. I know how to live alone. I don't need anybody to cook for me, bake for me, do anything. I can do it all myself. And being alone, I was alone. And I wouldn't recommend it. I would not recommend that. If you, Preparation is also part of having people in your life that can be there to help you. Well, you're saying you feel isolated. You're more isolated. You feel more alone because Listen, I'm a loner. My life is spent, everything I do, it's so public, like at this moment. But most of my time is spent alone. I I write every day. I'm creating reels. I'm doing all sorts of things. And I'm here by myself. So my life is spent alone. I know lots of people, but I don't have a cavalcade of friends, right? Knocking on your door, checking on you each day, making sure that you're doing okay. I have some very close friends, a few, one of whom you had on your show. Stuart Tom, who's probably my closest friend. So I've had to learn to prepare by having, allowing people into my life and not to be so damn independent. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. I have a dear friend who said to me, why didn't you call me? I'm here to help. And it's like, well, but I didn't want to trouble you. And then I realized that I sound like my grandmother did. Yes, I know. It's Isn't that terrible? It's like, are you kidding me? Like this is, we're in a shared experience here. We're living this world together. And while some of the things that we individually go through may feel isolating, it doesn't mean we have to go it alone. This is one of the reasons for my podcasting journey that I've connected to so many podcasters because it can be a really solo enterprise. And there's strength in even just being able to share that journey with someone else and saying, gosh, I'm having trouble doing X, Y, and Z. What are you doing to solve that? And to be able to share that knowledge and that experience. And so there's actually a book I wanted to clue you into. It's by, I could grab it from my shelf, but I have to step away. It's called Cycle of Lives. And it's written by David Richman. This book is about people's cancer journeys. 
And this individual, his sister had been diagnosed. And so he chose to ride his bicycle from the Pacific Northwest down to Los Angeles and then across the country to catalog the stories of people confronting cancer. And sometimes it was that person had passed. And so their family members are left behind and trying to move on with their lives or picking up the pieces and really just these kind of in-depth stories. But the thing that he heard again and again from telling these stories and then from confronting people on the road who even in some cases recognized him was that there was so much power in being able to connect with other people who understood automatically what they were confronting and what they were going through. And I think that's something that we all need to be more mindful of, of finding our communities, because as we confront something, like let's say you're a young woman and you're trying to get pregnant and you're battling that and it can feel like a fight and you're doing all the right things and you maybe just waited a little bit too long to get pregnant or that's what you feel. That's what you think. I mean, I was a geriatric mom. I didn't have trouble conceiving, but I so empathized with people who had that trouble that I ended up being an egg donor for another couple who couldn't conceive. So I understand I can empathize with it, but I also don't know what it's like to really sit in that seat. And I think often when we confront these challenges, we need to remember that we don't have to be alone, even if we feel isolated. And that that then can impact our mental health and our ability to get through those really difficult days. Because you tell that story of not being able to get up off the couch, but having it be that in your face, the chemo's kicking your ass. It is something. I was raised in Pittsburgh. Steeltown, USA, right? Yeah, it was a blue. My father was a Polish immigrant. It was We were poor, blue collar family, but I wouldn't have known we were poor. My mother and father were wonderful people. It was a rough neighborhood, man. I grew up a tough kid in a tough neighborhood, but I can tell you, when you are in front of your mortality, all of a sudden, there is this, if you're at least half awake, there'll be this sudden shift in what is important. Yeah, it's like clarity, right? Immediate. It's unbelievable. The hierarchy of what's important, everything, it all gets scrambled. And what was at the bottom is now at the top sometimes. And if you think you're a tough guy and this and that, when you're dealing with whether it's cancer or some other hideous, pernicious, terrible disease. It has a unique way of making you realize that you just have to appreciate our vulnerability. That's part of preparation too, to accept the idea that in many ways we are vulnerable. But you know what? That's okay. You don't have to be a tabernacle of wisdom, strength, fortitude all the time. Right. I just laugh because tabernacle is not a word many people know. And the reason I know it is because I spent time in Quebec, Canada. And in Canada, in that area, it has become a cuss word. <laughs> a tabernacle is like an altar within a church, ultimately, right? Yeah, I was. I went to Catholic school. I, was, I had great education. Nuns were my best teachers. I guess my point is that having people in your life that care about and love you is truly important. I've been a loner and I had to rethink my life. And I said, you can't continue to live this way. You have to make time, not only for others to help them, but for others to be with you and maybe help you. How about that? Right. And that's a part of self-care too, right? So that can help you feel more value in your daily life and stress less. 
I'm reminded too of a conversation that I had on this podcast with Dr. Joseph Maroon, who I think you also know. I know Dr. Maroon. He's a good guy. Yeah. He wrote a book called Square One, which really is all about what it's a story that he's been sharing for a long time, but really just about balancing out so that each of these lines looks like the line of a square where you have your work, your life, your spiritual and your physical self. And so that you end up with a square as opposed to a little tiny square and a flat line that is your work life so that you get these things in balance and can therefore hold up the roof of the house that you're building with these four pillars. And I just think it's something that we need to revisit. We need to think about, especially as we're heading into the holidays, when this episode will air, that family is critical, that your health is your most vital asset in your daily life. Your body is what enables you to walk around, to enjoy life, to get outside. So feeding it the nutrition it needs, giving it the right spiritual balance, whether that be through meditation, through spending time in nature, whatever it is that you divine to bring you that sense of connection and relaxation, I think is absolutely critical to your health. And it can't be ignored so often. It feels like that piece gets just shoved into the corner because you have other things that are staring at you like a fire hose. Yeah. I said many times when I was on air that I would end a show every day. I would say your health is your wealth and your health is the wealth of those that care about and love you. So if you don't want to take care of yourself for yourself, take care of yourself because of the other people in your life. It's an expression of love. That's right. Sure. Because if something should befall you, your loss is going to be their loss too. And the other guiding principle I have is I believe this with every fiber of my physical, spiritual, mental being that nutrition is the first and guiding principle of health, that all roads eventually lead back to food and nutrition in one way or another, in some form or fashion. That's not a cliche. People say, well, the body can heal itself. Well, listen, it's not going to heal itself out of the ether. It needs something to do that with. It needs the building blocks, the materials. What's interesting about the body, if you give it crappy building materials, that's what it will use to build your body to try to repair it with a house. If you give it formidable and meaningful and healthy food, it will do a better job for you. So eventually, it can't heal itself without that proper nutrition, whether in food and through dietary supplementation, which leads me to say, like with your company, and the supplements and the products that it makes. This is a big industry. There are companies left and right all over the place. Most of them are marketing companies masquerading as supplement companies. They sell crap. They just do. And your products are quality products. When you put something in your body, when you buy a supplement, you remember you're not buying a shirt or a suit or a pair of slacks. You're buying something to put in your body. That has profound implications and consequences and make damn sure that what you're eating is what you should be doing. The cells have a unique memory. They remember everything you did and didn't do. So the supplementation becomes, to the question that you asked me about 20 minutes ago, supplementation is a critical part of what I do now, as I did before, but in a more strategic targeted way. And I'm very selective about what supplements I use and why, right? So Orlo, your mega products, 
and products that you were so kind to send me, and we can talk about those some other time, are really important. Now, there are a lot of companies out there making products left and right. People should be careful about that, though, and make sure that you're selecting a product that is not rancid, that was made with care and quality, and the company is driven by ethics and values. That becomes really important. I can't stress that enough. I consult with companies all day, and that's part of my career, and I enjoy doing it. And I only affiliate with people and companies that are honest and do the right thing. And so I'm impressed until I had the occasion to call you. I didn't know much about Orlo. Yeah. We are relatively new in the marketplace, but to your point is... Yeah, well, and I've learned more, and I'm going to say, I appreciate what you're doing there. And I know you. You're a very committed person. You don't do things casually or haphazardly. You're always all in on what you do, and you don't affiliate with people that you don't suffer fools and unethical people very well. You don't. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the best compliments I've ever been given. Yeah. Well, I've known you a long time. And so when you told me you were working for them, I set about to find out who the company was and I can see why you're doing what you're doing. I'm not sounding like I'm trying to plug your company. I'm just saying to people that dietary supplementation can be highly overrated. And I think it is. Well, as I put it, it can be expensive excrement because you could be basically right. spend. They take too many supplements. They take the wrong supplements and they're taking them with the wrong company. If you want to supplement, you have to be very mindful, smart, and strategic. And so I want to thank you again. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all that. As we often say on this show, it's the tissue that's the issue. You have to absorb the nutrition to get into your tissue. And too often we just, we throw a bunch of band-aids on top of stuff. We eat the wrong things. Even when we're trying to do right, we stop at the Starbucks drive-in and get whatever mochaccino latte people want. Well, I used to go to Starbucks, but right behind me, I have a gourmet kitchen. Normally, I would do this from my studio, but it's under construction behind me. I make espresso every morning. I make my own espresso, and I use almond milk. I'm so I'm crazy about the way I do with food, but I enjoy caffeine. I have a question for you. I'll interview you for one second. <laughs> what do you think people consume? in this country, whereby they get their most antioxidants. People consume that they get the most antioxidants. Uh-huh. It's going to be coffee or tea, one of those. It's coffee. Yeah. That is the most consumed product whereby people are getting antioxidants. So everybody's down on coffee and caffeine. I dig caffeine. Yeah, I dig caffeine too. I like caffeine and I like coffee. I felt gifted by because I've heard some nutritionists I know will say things like, Coffee creates a lot of acidity in your system. It creates an environment that's friendly for disease is what I've heard them say. But I basically got the pass from a few doctors who I'm connected to that essentially said the benefits outweigh the concerns, especially when you start to consider a mental health and long-term potential for disease like Alzheimer's or dementia. I have one representation of ApoE4 allele, which means I'm at an increased risk for development of these long-term degenerative diseases of the brain. And I take that very seriously. So I feel justified in my coffee. I drink it all day long until the evening when I tend to transition to other things. There's an institute here in Tampa where they study coffee and its ability to forestall dementia in its different forms. The Bird Institute, they were on my show a number of times, a few times. But the world of food and nutrition is so intriguing. I came to it, I mean, it's always been with me, but I really got into it and got credentialed, I mean, the last 25, 30 years of my life. 
Before then, I did a lot of other stuff, musician and whatnot. But if I had to do it over again, I would have started earlier. To me, it's the game changer. When I think about starting it over, I think about going to get my either a medical license of some sort or become a registered dietitian, just so the things that I share with the world might come with a little bit more weight and press and things along those lines. But the reality is I'm here to share my information. I've heard very good things about your podcast. My colleagues say that you know, and I told you at the beginning of our conversation today, told me that you do a good job and the podcast is well received and it's very popular. And that night that encouraged me to call you I, to connect. And I wanted the opportunity to share in my own humble way. I just want to say one thing though. The last thing I want to share with you, the real heroes are the children who get cancer. I have a former student of mine who's a therapist now, and he's married. He has a couple of kids. Turns out that they were passed on some genes, two SNPs. Both children have cancer. Now, my story compared to that is a comic book compared to that. These are innocents. And as I said to you before, cancer is an unforgiving, unrelenting, undiscriminating, pernicious disease that prowls and preys on the young and the old and everybody in between. It's the young. You walk into these cancer clinics and institutes for children. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I've gone to the Lucille Packer. I'm close to Stanford. And we didn't share this earlier, but I became a marathon runner, raising funds for team and training. So I raised over $20,000 just running marathons to support research for leukemia and lymphoma. And even the home I ended up buying was occupied by somebody who had lymphoma and had to move closer to a treatment center. So when they put it up for sale, that went in my letter to them saying, I understand how hard a time this is. I'm willing to pay the ask and I hope you'll consider our offer. It's amazing how many people are affected by leukemias and lymphomas. And thankfully, there are more treatments for those cancers than many of the others. So we make progress every day. And hopefully those children that you reference are going to come out of this without lifetime challenges. You hope for the best. You hope for the best. I think I said this a number of times. Everybody should be given a chance to sit in a chemo room. I would even say maybe even for one day, for the entire day. I sat in a chemo room every day, every Monday for four hours, for months and months. I saw terrible things. And one day I was in there and it was a big chemo room and there were maybe 50, 75, 100 people in there. I was full that day. And I was looking around and I was in a bad way. I walked out of there and I, as I got into my car, I said, I'm grateful. Compared to what I saw, I saw people dying. I knew they were dying. They were in front of me while I was watching this. And I thought, I'm grateful. It is sick. I was grateful. And one last thought, the team that you have is important. Make no mistake about it. If you get sick with cancer, that team of doctors is critical. It can make all the difference in the world. I remember one day I was with Dr. Fink. I had to go in and to see him for a regular appointment. I was, and I was sick and he knew it and he knew I was concerned. Again, people say, well, were you afraid? Hell yeah, I was afraid, but I was not a coward as I told you. And I, I was concerned about, finally I came to accept it. Okay, if you're going to die, you're going to die. But he could tell that I was struggling. And we went through the 
laps and this and that. And we were walking out and we're walking down the hall and he put his arm around me and he whispered in my ear and he said, not to worry, I'm going to save your life. I mean, that doctor, he saved my life and he is just amazing person to me. He's not just a physician. I mean, I said, how do you do this every day? You're watching death and dying. He said, if I can help one person, I can continue to do this. But when he did that, his empathy, his humanity, that makes a difference. I'm telling you, it gave me hope. It gave me hope. And so there's many things I could share with you about that experience. That was such such a profound moment when he put his arm around me like that. Well, it's in moments like that, that doctor, they're in the right profession. (laughs) So... Truth be told, too, there are some doctors, I don't know what they're doing in this profession, but most of my friends who are doctors and physicians and ones I've encountered were good, sensitive, empathetic, caring people. And that makes a difference. The team you have makes a difference. Remember what I just said, it does. It truly does. You can have a bad team and you will have a difficult time. That's right. Well, I want to say this before we get ready to close, and that is just that I consider you a champion for nutrition and health. I'm so pleased to have had the opportunity to bring you on this show. And I invite you back to talk more about the post-cancer nutrition that ultimately that you like. to. We can talk about diet, nutrition, and cancer and try to deal with some of the myths and misconceptions and dangerous things that people are doing. And what does the literature, my motto is show me the data. I would love to come back and do that with you anytime. Yes. So we'll plan for that. And I just want to say again, thank you for sharing your story. I know that this will touch people, especially those who have had to confront these sorts of issues in the past or who are presently confronting them. And I think there's power in just having a real down to brass tax conversation about the challenges you face. So thank you so much for that. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for giving me the opportunity. And I want to extend to you and the people watching this podcast Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you celebrate it with your family and in the embrace of grace and gratitude. Thank you so much. I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Dr. Michael Garko and all of his important work with show notes. You can always visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog, which includes transcripts, features you won't find anywhere else, and more. If you have questions about what we covered or topics that you'd like to see featured on the show in future, please send me an email note to hello at orlonutrition.com, or you can always contact us via social channels at Orlo Nutrition. That's at O-R-L-O Nutrition. And for all of our listeners, I also want to remind you that you have the opportunity to receive an extra 10% off any of your orders if you just use the coupon code NWC10 at checkout. That is for first-time orders only, but stay tuned for also future offers you can join our email mailing list as well to be apprised of future show offerings. As we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup with me as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.